0: This morning, we are going into, um, you heard about the Lamb of God just now, right? Who talks about the Lamb of God but the Gospel of John? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're going into the Gospel of John. Take a Bible this morning, and we're looking at the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction to the book, and then we're going to try and go through the first 18 verses, though I'm warning you, I've just only got through 14 verses with the Spanish. So we may not be able to cover all of this ground. But that's called the prologue, verses 1 through 18 of the Gospel of John. And I'd like to at least introduce you to um, the prologue this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four pictures of Jesus. John's picture is unique, has many different elements than you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which should remind us that there's not one of us that has that perfect explanation of truth, that perfect picture of Jesus. The truth as it is in Jesus is so multifaceted. There is not just one way of looking at it. This morning, we will look at John's perspective, which, as I said, is a unique perspective, very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But before we get to some of those interesting details, let's think about when this book was written, the book was probably written around AD 95, let's just say very late in the first century. This man John, the Apostle John, also wrote the epistles of John, found right at the back of your Bible, 1 John, Second John, Third John, plus another book. Which one? Book of Revelation. All five books, of course, lay a strong emphasis on Jesus, a strong emphasis on salvation, but also a strong emphasis on obedience, what it means to follow Jesus, keeping his commandments. So if anybody says to you, hey, I don't know about this commandment commandment business. I'm a Christian. I'm under the new covenant. I don't know about this. I don't agree with all of this commandment business, especially this Sabbath stuff, isn't that usually the way it goes, then you can jump into any one of those books, and I bet you it will either tell you something about the Sabbath, it will almost certainly tell you something about the importance of keeping the commandments of God. And I believe one of the reasons for that kind of emphasis is because near the end of the first century, heresies were affecting the church. Plus, John would soon die. He had been the pillar of the church, the eldest statesman. Soon he will pass away. And that's also a reason why we have this kind of literature as we do. Another reason is we have a second generation of Christians These are Christians that hadn't seen Jesus. They hadn't touched Jesus. They hadn't heard the words of Jesus. Of course, the next best thing was to find Jesus' friend. If you want to know about Jesus and he's not around, ask his best friend, John. But hey, John's soon going to leave. Can you imagine how anxious the community would be when we're losing, not only are we losing our pastor, we're losing this man that was so close to Jesus, that was so so much in tune with the ways of God. So remember that idea of writing to a second generation of Christians with the idea of, is the second generation or the third, fourth, or fifth, or 20th, or the 21st century Christian, are we at a disadvantage? Because we do not see and touch and feel the Lord Jesus Christ like John did. And the, and the answer in the Gospel of John is, no way are we at a disadvantage. And of course, through the Holy Spirit, and that's one of the emphasis of John, through the Holy Spirit, we all have access in a very unique way, in a very special way, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a little bit of an introduction. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, as we open these uh, very deep and lofty, verses, some of the strongest expressions of the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll open our minds, open our hearts. May we not be lazy Christians, but may we be um, zealous Christians who sink our teeth into the tough parts of Scripture as well. May we be drawn to you and share good news with those around us in jesus name we pray amen okay the gospel of john chapter one in the beginning was what the word and the word was with god and the word was god here we have another name for jesus Jesus has lots of names in Scripture. God has lots of names in Scripture. But here's a unique one, the idea of word. Now, why would John use a concept that you do not find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? But after all, it's not unusual for John to use something that's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very important to realize that Bible writers have freedom to express themselves according to their culture, according to their community. So if a Bible writer is writing to a Jewish audience to use phrases like son of God, son of man, these are Jewish phrases. A Jew would have no problem with that. But what if you have primarily a Gentile, people who have come from a pagan background? How would you communicate truth about Jesus to them? Well, then you would have to find different imagery, maybe different language to paint that picture of Jesus. So he takes this idea of word. Word is something that Plato the great Greek philosopher used. So it was was embedded in Greek thinking. And Plato would say certain things about the word, trying uh, uh, trying to express something about God. And then other writers would come, people like Philo would come. He lived around Jesus' time. And they would all also add something to the idea of the word. And then, of course, by the time the Apostle John, there were very clear pictures that Gentiles had of this word. And the amazing thing is that John could take something that was very strong in a pagan culture and apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ without getting into any heresy or teaching anything wrong. You know, there is a statement in Ellen White's writings where she she talks about how pagan philosophers, pagan teachers, have been influenced by the Holy Spirit of God. That's that's not saying that they had necessarily um, an understanding of Jesus. Most, Most certainly most of them did not. But there would be some elements of truth within their belief system. It's like God is preparing the way for when Jesus should come. Do you remember this te- a text that says, "In the fullness of time, Christ came." What what does that mean? And a Seventh-day Adventist, well, we would get all the, the mathematical charts out, and we would show how in Daniel he came just at the right time, and that could be part of the answer. But another way of looking at it is to think, well, God allowed in his wisdom a great age of learning, a great age of Greek empire, Greek civilization, Greek language. The New Testament was written in common Greek. And these great philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and and many others, would stretch their minds. They had great brains, and they would stretch them, and they would try and figure out what this world is all about, what life is all about. God would allow that to happen, and they'd probably come up pretty bankrupt, don't you think, without the gospel? And then he would allow Roman civilization. And it was during that period when the world had pretty much exhausted its resources trying to figure out about God and life that Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ, he's going to say in this chapter, in this prologue, is the light shining in the darkness. But people couldn't understand it. Here with the Word, it's talking about the pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about his deity. Is the Father God? Is the Father God? I thought it was just a few on this side that had the right answers you have to test the water a little bit so the father is God is Jesus God what about the word is the word God what kind of God is the word is he a God with a big G or a little G is he a lesser God Did the Father at some time bring into existence the Word? Now, there are passages in Proverbs 8 and possibly other places in Scripture where some religious groups claim, yes, Jesus is special, but don't put him on the same category as Almighty God. After all, it even says in this passage later on that he was begotten of God. And we'll get to that later, but it's important at this point when we're talking about the Word and and his relationship to God to make it really clear that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here the Son is being spoken of as the Word. So God is Father, Word, and Holy Spirit, right? Or wrong? Right. Right. There's There's full equality between Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, of course, is not mentioned in this passage here, but God is mentioned. And we have this distinction in the Godhead. These three personalities working in total unity, total harmony on behalf of their creation, this universe. This week I was, uh, spent some time with somebody that says, well, the Bible just seems to talk about this world. There must be much more out there than just this world. Where would you take someone if they, if they had those kind of concerns? Well, I took him to another beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, same phrase as used here in John, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even when I read it, or I didn't read it, I had it in my head, even when I verbalized it, I don't think it sunk in. And that's one of the things that impresses me as i read this passage and when i look at my own experience with god often we're waiting for individuals for the light to come on so you can be there for 10 minutes 20 minutes an hour and the light doesn't seem to come on there's still in darkness and you're hoping well hey i'm going to get some seed in the ground while i can And maybe down the road, God will, in his goodness, will will let it germinate. The miraculous revelation of God, the miraculous recreation of man, it's all in this passage. You're not going to find a richer passage than this one in Scripture, at least as far as the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and we're caught up right in the middle of the divinity and the humanity of Christ when we are born of God. Anyway, before we get to that, verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, a few things were made. All things, including sin. No, the Bible clearly makes makes clear in other places, not sin. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So this word, who later will be identified as Jesus Christ, is the creator God, in him was one of John's favorite four-letter words. Life. Life. Great word. Very contemporary. I would encourage you to use it when you're sharing Jesus with other people. In him the word was life, and that life was the light of men. Life and light are linked together. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That's what I mean when you're waiting for the penny to drop. This idea of understanding, spiritually understanding. It has nothing to do with intellect. You might have the highest IQ on the block, and you're still in darkness when truth is shared with you. You may be eating and drinking with Jesus and be clueless what he's all about. Even the disciples didn't understand his mission. And this is what we titled the sermon this morning, The Mission of Jesus. It took them quite a long time to understand his divinity. This Gospel of John is a pretty amazing book. The different picture of Jesus that you get, his assertiveness, his combativeness, he's willing to get into debate, Sometimes it can even be sarcastic. Don't find it the same way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if for some of you out there feel, well, I'm not really like the meek and mild Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have John to fall back on. By the way, written by a son of thunder. Different stories. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, no Nicodemus. No Samaritan woman. No paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. No blind man. No Pilate and no failing of Peter. No parables. This morning, many of us studied a parable in Matthew 22. You don't find them in the Gospel of John. No mention of Jesus' birth. Is Jesus' birth important? John doesn't mention it. What about Jesus' baptism? Important? He doesn't mention it. What about the temptations of Jesus? What about the Last Supper? What about Gethsemane? That's pretty important, don't you think? Not mentioned. What about the ascension of Jesus to heaven? Not mentioned. What about casting out of all these evil spirits we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Not mentioned. So, what is mentioned? That Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Even when you search the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that the early Christian community had. When you search the Old Testament, are you going to get the picture of Jesus as clear as when he came? Later in the chapter, he will talk about the law coming through Moses. The law can mean the whole scripture, but grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. One of the important aspects of the Gospel of John is what we call realized eschatology. At least that's what the theologians call it. Eschatology is the study of what? Last day events. Come on, you adventists. You're into last day events, aren't you? You can spend three months in a prayer meeting on last day events. It's what we call eschatology, last day events. The end times. Read about end times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're in the future. Read about end times in the Gospel of John. They're in the present. John brings the future into the present. It's a unique feature of this book. And, of course, he talks a lot about the cross, the glory of the cross, the salvation is life. So when when you see that little word, life, That's his buzzword for salvation, and of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then he mentions John in verse 6. He's introducing John. This is another John. This is not the Apostle John. This is John who? John the Baptist. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. That's a purpose. It's an objective. In fact, if you take this Gospel of John and go to chapter 20, he tells us, which is quite rare in the Bible, why he has written the book. Now, we've already got it in the verse that I just read. But it's a little bit clearer in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. <clears throat> Have you still got your teeth in the meat this morning? Larry, we call it the meat of the word. <clears throat> How many days was Jesus' ministry? How many years? About three and a half. Three, some say three, some say three and a half. Depending on whether you're using John's chronology or or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <clears throat> so let's call that how many days? Thousand plus. How many days do you think are in the Gospel of John? Out of a thousand. A thousand days, not one wasted day in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day filled with a miracle or something, some great saying of his or whatever, right? And this man is highly selective in the material of the Gospel of John and covers just a mere 29 days. And if you had to divide, map the book out, first 12 chapters talking about the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, and then the rest of the book on the death of Jesus Christ. Here in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Obviously, if he's only getting 29 out of a 1,000. But these are written that you may believe in this translation. In the Greek... You could translate it that you may continue to believe. Second generation of Christians. Devastated because John's the elder statement soon to pass away. Can we continue to believe without him around us? Yes, we can. Very much so. Especially if we pour over this material. That you may believe or continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's another term for the Messiah. The Son of God. And that by believing... You may have life, that's salvation, eternal life, in his name. So there's a very clear explanation of why the the book is like an evangelistic book that you might believe, but also a document for a second generation group of believers. And we're not second generation. I don't know what generation we are, but we certainly are in a similar situation where we do not have the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ physically in front of us. We cannot feel and touch Jesus Christ right, but through the Holy Spirit, we can have tremendous access to him. And as I said earlier, that is one of the emphases later in the book on the Holy Spirit. Well, let's finish up this section here. Life and light are linked together. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, how should we interpret that? The true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Does it mean that each inhabitant of the planet, every human being on the planet, has some kind of light? Maybe the light of conscience. Don't you believe that if if you follow your conscience in the direction that God is trying to lead you, that through the light of conscience, he would lead you to the light of Christ? I believe so. I don't know if that's what John's talking about. But it surely is an interesting passage that's worth a sermon down the road. The true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. Probably speaking of the Jewish people there. But his own did not receive him. Kind of negative, don't you think? Is it a waste of time for Jesus to come? No. Verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, or continue, the ones continuing to believe in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. When I'm teaching the Gospel of John, and I haven't really done that in this church, I will sometimes introduce the audience to a diagram. The diagram is called a chiasm. It's a literary device that some of the Bible writers use. It's a very clever way of laying your material out and saying this is the important point. So in this one here, and I'll just read it to you. You're not going to get the, the gist of it. Um, but it's a bit hard to follow unless you see it on a screen. Uh, verses 1 and 2, the word was with God. We've read that. Verse 18, the Word was with the Father. So we're getting some of this going on. In verses 1 and 2, the Word. In verse 18, the Word. We're going to climb a pyramid here. And we're going to come to the top of that pyramid, that chiasm, because that's going to be a really, really important point. In verse 3, it talks about the Word's role in creation. In verse 17, the Word's role in recreation. Uh, C, this is A, B, C, D, E, F being the top of the pyramid. C is the gift of life and light. And C on the other side of the pyramid is the gift of grace. D is the witness of the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. And D on the other side of the chiasm is the witness of the Baptist, verse 15. And E is the word enters the world, verses 9 through 11. E on the other side of the chiasm is the word becomes flesh. And the key verses are verses 12 and 13 that I just read to you, where believers become children of God. So that's another way of not misinterpreting the Word of God, of handling the Word of God correctly, because you're able to discover the way the author has laid his material out, and then you come to the pinnacle of that material, and that is verse 12 and 13. I'll read it again. Yet to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How many of you are children of God this morning? Isn't that thrilling? I don't hear many hallelujahs and amens out there. Children born not of the human, nothing to do with the human, not the human mind, the human will, sex or anything like that, but born of God. And what we have here. Is recreation. What we have here is recreation greater than any creation of the universe. Now, study the universe. We know quite a lot about space now. For sure, there's a lot we don't know, but we can go out and we can see galaxies colliding, we can get it on film. We can see some pretty exciting stuff out there. All of that has been created by the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through believing in Him as the sent of God, God's gift to the human race, the only one that can get you right with God, we have the right to become children of God. It's kind of interesting the way he words that, the right. We are inheritors, as Paul would say in Ephesians. Tremendously privileged people. That's why we should never fool around with God. This Christianity is a serious stuff. That doesn't mean say we should all be like mules, miserable all day long. No, we should be happy, joyful Christians, especially when we pour over material like this. And then finally, in verse 14, the Word became what? Flesh. So we have gone from divinity to humanity, and we're caught in between. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. This is what we call the incarnation. Theologians will talk about Christology. Who is this Christ? Who is this man? Is he God? Is he man? Yes, yes. Do we understand it? No, no. Do we try and understand that? Of course we do. That's why the Word is given to us, so we can pour over and stretch these puny little gray matters of ours. And yet, they are the greatest gift of God. The brain, intelligence, the fact that we can learn about God, hopefully believe in God, and worship God. Now, we might find examples in the Bible where animals speak but do you find examples where animals worship God? Do you find examples where animals are called children of God? Some are trying to link us with the apes. Be careful going there. When it says he made his dwelling amongst us, another, way, another translation that we could put is he pitched his tent with us. The picture is... The Israelites, their tents, tent, tent of meeting there in the desert. You remember those accounts in uh, the Bible, in the Old Testament. No man has ever seen God at any time. But this God has become flesh. God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ so we can get a true picture of God. And not only has he done that, but he has pitched his tent right in our midst. In fact, right in The very center of man in the heart of man we have seen his glory yes not on full display if we saw it that's what the bible means when it says no man has seen god and lived some of us are kind of confused about that it means that no man has seen god in his totality because if we did we would be destroyed so god comes veiled jesus came veiled came veiled in in flesh. But we've seen his glory, or something of his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When it says one and only in the NIV here, it means, another translation, King James is only begotten. And some have pounced on that and said, there you go. Jesus was created by the Father. He was begotten. The translation here is the one and only. Another translation could be the unique one, the special one. We've already dealt with the equality of Jesus Christ in the Godhead. There's no lesser God, they have equality. But here, his uniqueness, the one and only, coming from the Father sent by the father in that sense full of grace and truth john testifies concerning him and cries out saying this was he of whom i said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me from the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another the law was given through moses by the way this is, this text is is usually slaughtered in the christian community for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No grace with Moses, no grace in the law, baloney. Yes, there is a difference. The law demands, grace gives. There are some distinctions, but there's no separation. Certainly not the way that Christendom has separated these things. The law is a gift of God, God gives only good gifts. True? So let's let's translate that the right way. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. All of these things lead us to God. That is the purpose of the law. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only. Now, how do you feel about that translation about the word Jesus? God, the one and only. If you look in some of your margins of your Bibles, it will have this uh, monogenes is the Greek word, uh, only begotten. Uh, son but again it's the uniqueness that is emphasized who is at the father's side has made him known when you leave this building today whether you know it or not you're gonna paint a picture of God we've seen just a little bit in the prologue of John's picture do you like it no not so much do you like Paul's picture better I like John's picture very much In fact, I tell you, after being a Christian for many years now, I am thrilled every time I pore over these pages because I know that I'm not fully understanding everything. And yet what I am understanding is very, very glorious to me and very, very precious to me. And I believe that's one of the reasons when we talk about believing, we're not talking about believing the first day you become a Christian. We're talking about continuing to believe, staying strong in the faith, And those of you that are struggling to do that, well, you're encouraged in this book, the whole of this book, to continue to believe. Well, where does that kind of belief come from? It's not going to come from your bootstraps. You've got to pour over the Gospel of John and other such literature in the Bible so that your faith and your belief is strengthened. And you continue to believe. You're not like the the community in the book of Hebrews that's about to apostatize. And and he's warned not to do that. There's no other hope if you do that. Jesus is the only way. So you have all those warning passages in in the book of Hebrews. You also have a lot of encouraging passages in the book of Hebrews too. So how can second generation, 21st century Christians, how can we continue to believe by pouring over this material? When you're pouring over this material, the word will have life for you. The Word will be light for you. It will have vitality for you. The Christian community, even if it's expanding in numbers, is shrinking in spirituality. Because many Christians are not carrying a Bible anymore. Certainly not in their hand, not even in their head, not in their heart either. And if we try and live this Christian life on someone's third hand, on someone else's preaching, or the entertainment within the Christian community, it's not going to cut it, folks. We have to build ourselves up, stay strong, continue strong in the faith. I like the picture of John, but I wonder what picture you and I are going to present as we leave this building today. You will paint a picture. May it not be a legalistic picture. May it be a graceful picture. May it be a truthful picture, yes. But if you lean on one side, and everyone has an emphasis, don't they? Make it graceful. Draw, allure people to Jesus. He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all to me. Let's lift him up the right way. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to jump into the Gospel of John. All the seed ideas are right there in the first chapter, the the prologue, that develop later in the book. Such a wonderful book, a literary masterpiece, Lord. And yet, at the same time, material that can soften these hard hearts of ours, that can be used by the Spirit to draw us to you. Lord, some of us don't feel very good at painting pictures, but give us what we need to leave this building and to share Jesus in the marketplace of ideas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.